Section 6 of The Romance of the Romanoffs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 6 A Romanoff Princess. The surviving family of Maria Miloslavsky and Tsar Alexis consisted of six sturdy daughters and one purblind, weak pated boy. On the approved principles of Russian, especially imperial, education, these daughters ought to have been reconciled to the modest position to which the inferiority of their sex condemned them, and, as their brother was plainly incapable of ruling, they ought to have passed into convents or been distributed amongst the households of wealthy courtiers. But there was at least one daughter, Sophia, who had not the least intention of submitting to the priestly theory. If her fifteen-year-old brother could make no effort for the throne, she would make it for him. She would fight the hated Anastasia. Visitors to the court have left us very different impressions of this remarkable princess, but we have little difficulty in removing the thick coat of flattery and obtaining a satisfactory glimpse of her. She was twenty-five years old at the death of Theodore, a short, very stout, and very vigorous young woman her face covered to some extent with a fine hair which gave her an even more masculine appearance. Probably she had led the usual enclosed life during her father's reign, but in the time of her invalid brother she had had more freedom. She especially made the acquaintance of Vasily Galitsyn, a very clever and accomplished prince of European culture who overlooked her entire lack of personal charm and, either then or at a later date, became her lover. In her apartments she formed a literary circle and through her visitors she got into touch with remote elements of Moscow society. One of these sections of the population of Moscow, which a conspirator would naturally explore, was the military force known as the Strelsi, a privileged corporation of soldiers who handed on the office from father to son and gave themselves airs of importance. We have no direct proof that Sophia got into communication with this body, but the historical facts and the later action and expressions of Peter the Great seem to put it beyond question. The Strelsi were mutinous at the time of the death of Theodore because their pay was, as usual, in arrears. They were reduced to silence by the application of the knout publicly to the shoulders of their officers, but they remained sullen and inflammable. It is said that the agents of Sophia and her uncle went amongst them distributing money and whispering poisonous libels. The late emperor, it was suggested to them, had died of poison. When Matviev returned from Siberia, they greeted him with apparent respect, and the court settled to its usual prosperous life. Four days later, however, the Kreml awoke to find a grave and ominous movement afoot. Twenty regiments of the Strelsi had seized their arms and were irregularly massed in front of the Kreml. The sleeves of their red shirts were rolled up as if for butchery, and a close observer would have found that they reeked with vodka. Behind them was the rabble of the town. The bells were calling shrilly from the steeples. Drums were beaten, and cannon rumbled toward the palace. The servants of the court learned that someone had spread amongst them a report that princes Ivan and Peter had been strangled, and a brother of Natalia had seized the crown. Natalia hastened to show the princes at the top of the red staircase to the crowd, and for a moment it seemed to be balked. Matviev and the patriarch prudently addressed the men, and they were about to disperse. It is said that Prince Dolgoruki, one of the group of courtiers about the Tsarina, then made offensive and arrogant remarks to the soldiers, and the whole mass of inflammable material took flame. The prince was soon flung from the head of the steps and caught on the spears of the soldiers below. 
Matviev was cut to pieces, and the murderers searched the palace for Natalia's brother. After murdering one or two wrong men, they found him in the chapel and dispatched him. Another brother was torn from Natalia's arms and cut to pieces. Three younger brothers escaped from Moscow. For three days, the friends and relatives of the Tsarina were sought and butchered, dragged by the hair through the streets, knouted to death, flung from windows upon the spears, roasted with red-hot spears, cut to pieces, and so on. One does not like to dwell upon the horrors, but there will come presently a page in the life of Peter the Great that requires explanation. Peter, then nine years old, trembled by the side of his mother in the Kreml while her friends and relatives were barbarously slain on every side by the Strelsi. It is said that Sophia at length interceded and arrested the butchery, and that she gave ten rubles each to the Strelsi. A week later, the emboldened soldiers came again and demanded that the idiot Ivan should be associated with Peter and the Sardom. Most of the boyars were opposed to so ridiculous and unprecedented a change, but the patriarch and other ministers were conveniently at hand, and it was done. In a few more days, there was a fresh riot. Ivan, being the elder, must have precedence of Peter, and so it was appointed. Some historians find it not unnatural that after this display of zeal for her brother, Sophia should provide a feast for the Strelsi, and, with her own plump hand, pour out their wine. Perhaps it was just as natural that the Strelsi should next return with a demand that Sophia be appointed regent for the young Tsars. The nobles now saw how the wind sat, and they obeyed. A double throne was ordered of the Dutch merchants, and, when it came, Sophia had a hole, decently veiled, cut into the back, so that she could listen to the audiences. She occupied the place of a Tsarina, and with the aid of her lover, Galitzin, ruled the empire. Galitzin was married, but, at Sophia's suggestion, it is said he persuaded his wife to enter a convent, which left him free to marry again. Apparently, the virago would wed him and share the throne with him. But the Strelsi were old-fashioned believers and were in no mind to see the traditions of Russian decency thus violated. Their murmurs were strengthened by those of other malcontents. Sophia was more punctilious about ritual and doctrine than conduct, and, like Nikon, she laid a heavy hand upon dissenters. One of their leaders at Moscow was executed. The rumble in the city grew louder, and Sophia, affecting at least to believe that the Strelsi now threatened her life, fled with her court to the large and fortified monastery at Troitsa, 18 miles from Moscow. She prudently took with her Ivan and Peter, and she issued a frantic summons to the country to protect her and them. Tens of thousands of boyars and soldiers streamed to Troitsa, and the Strelsi became apprehensive. Their leader, Kovansky, and his son were invited to come and confer with Sophia at Troitsa, and they unsuspectingly went. They were arrested on the way and put to death, and the Strelsi, cowed by her strength, came, with ropes round their necks, to Troitsa, to ask and obtain forgiveness. But the discontent was not eased at Moscow, and the policy upon which Sophia and Galitzin now concentrated their resources fed the murmurs. All Europe was alarmed at the continuous menace of the Turks, and in 1686 Galitzin led south a large army for the purpose of chastising them and their Tatar allies and regaining territory for Russia. The costly army, terribly reduced in the southern wilderness, was forced to return without having even sighted the Turks, and the complaints and satire of Moscow were loud. Sophia and Galitzin endeavored to cover the disgrace by sending to Siberia an inoffensive general and loading the soldiers with honors. It was, however, necessary to redeem the failure, and in 1689 a second grand army was entrusted to Galitzin. 
His nerve may have been shaken when, as he was starting, he found a coffin placed by unknown hands on his doorstep, and he can scarcely have been unaware that it was generally believed that during his absence Sophia consoled herself with the attentions of his colleague, Shaklovitty. He failed once more, and all Sophia's pretense of triumph could not hide his disgrace. She walked in triumphal procession, distributed brandy, and heaped honors upon the victors. Men now spoke of her with contempt. It was rumored that she had a melodramatic plot of marrying Ivan and, since he would have no children, providing his wife with a lover. When this woman bore a son, Peter could be thrust aside as not in the line of succession, and when Peter was excluded from the situation, the illegitimacy of the child might be discovered, and Sophia and Galitzin might rule in peace. The plot was so ludicrous that she can scarcely have entertained it, but it served to fan the growing resentment of her rule. That rule was, however, now threatened by Peter himself. During these years, the boy had grown up sturdily, with his mother in a village a few miles from Moscow. On important occasions, he would be driven into Moscow to sit beside his goggle-eyed half-brother on the golden throne, but he detested the Kreml and loved the free, open-air life of the village. His mother, Natalia, seems to have belied entirely the excellence of her early years and scandalously neglected his education. He learned to read, and he read a great and confusing assortment of books of history and adventure. He learned to write, but the lessons stopped at so rudimentary a stage that he always had great difficulty in spelling. His days were spent amongst grooms, servants, and any boys with whom he pleased to associate. He became a creature of impulse, and in that world in which he grew up, the impulses one followed were neither gentle nor decent. The theory that Peter the Great profited by his rude education in contact with nature and real human beings, instead of being reared in the artificial atmosphere of the imperial terum, may point with some pride to his energy, his promptness, his scorn of conventions, but it must embrace also those impulsive outbursts of ferocity and those unchecked debauches which kept his character throughout life little above the level of a savage. Peter had lately passed his 17th birthday, when, in 1689, Galitzin returned from his second failure. The one imperial idea which grew amidst his vices was the thought that he would some day command the military forces of Russia, and his play constantly turned upon soldiering. He formed companies out of his servants and associates. He had a fort built at the village of Priobrzynski, which he made his chief center, and a kind of rough informal court grew up about him. Nobles and boyars joined his military games, his mimic regiments, and they joined also in his nightly revels. He must have heard much disdainful talk about the campaigns of Prince Galitzin, and no doubt there were ambitious men who urged him to act. The city, he would know, now openly complained. One day a paper was found in one of the squares, telling the finder that a valuable paper was hidden behind a picture of the Virgin in a certain church. A crowd sought the miraculous communication and found a lampoon on the regent Sophia. Hence, when Sophia would prepare a triumphal return for her lover and grant honors to the defeated soldiers, Peter refused his imperial consent. When Galitzin thought it prudent to visit Priobrzynski, after Sophia had acted on her own account, Peter refused to see him. The two camps began to glower at each other, and men began to pass from the Kreml to the village. During the night of August 7th, a few weeks after Galitzin's return, Peter was roused from sleep with the news that his half-sister was gathering troops at the Kreml, which were to come and destroy him. It transpired afterwards that there was a troop assembled at the Kreml that night. 
Sophia declared that the soldiers were to accompany her on a pilgrimage on the morrow, but it seems to be proved that Sophia and her friends discussed the idea of dispatching Peter, and it was, apparently, some of the soldiers themselves who brought the news. Peter was not a youth of courage. He jumped out of bed, got a horse from the stables, and rode hard in his shirt for the forest. A few officers and soldiers took his clothes and joined him, and they galloped to the famous monastery at Troitza. They arrived at six in the morning, and Peter, shuddering with fright, the tears streaming down his blanched cheeks, implored the Archimandrite, Abbot, to protect him. During the day, Natalia joined her son, bringing the young wife, Eudoxia, whom she had driven him to wed, but whom he had promptly discarded for coarser pleasures. A few regiments of soldiers came, and the monastery fortress was put into shape for a fight. The majority of the troops had not yet made up their minds which of the royal autocrats they would support, and a period of uncertainty and parleying followed. With Peter, there were able nobles like Boris Galitzin, cousin of Vasily, and they urged him to be bold. He ordered detachments of the various regiments at Moscow to appear before him at Troitsa. Sophia's servants intercepted the orders, and she bade the troops, under penalty of death, to keep to their barracks. But the balance of confidence was on the side of Peter, and as time went on, furtive streams of soldiers and nobles passed to Troitsa. A formidable army grew up there. On the other hand, Moscow was very far from united in favor of Sophia. Her troops melted away. The dissenters, whom she had heavily punished, gathered boldly about the Kreml and noisily advised her to go into a convent. Vasily Galitsyn wanted to go to Poland to borrow an army. Whether or no Sophia distrusted her nervous associate, she refused to consent, and Vasily deserted her and retired to his country seat. She sent the patriarch to Troitsa and presently learned that the prelate had decided to remain there, a supporter of her detested half-brother. Then she boldly set out for a personal discussion with Peter. She had twice as much courage as he, and at that time, three times as much energy. But troops barred her way and sent her back to Moscow. She threw herself upon the gratitude of the Strelsi, and they loudly swore that they would die for her. But in a few days, they came to demand that her second favorite, Sheklaviti, be surrendered as a scapegoat to Troitsa, and, after a frantic and tearful resistance, she was compelled to yield. She had for the moment lost the struggle. Shaklaviti was knouted until he confessed that there was a plot against Peter, and he was then beheaded. Vasily Galitsyn, the man of many accomplishments and few capabilities, crawled to the feet of Peter's rude throne and begged forgiveness. He was banished to the frozen north. Other nobles were executed or exiled, and Sophia was at her brother's mercy. She would foresee the hated sentence. Peter permitted her to choose her own convent, and she chose the convent of the Virgin, near Moscow. She may have smiled at his leniency. But Peter had wanted merely security for his wild life, not the heavy duties and responsibilities of reigning. His simple half-brother Ivan he did not notice, and it is much to his credit, one of the very few things to the credit of his personal character, that as long as the weak-witted man lived, Peter left him untouched. It was not the Moscovite way. He let Boris Galitsyn and his mother's relatives squabble for power, as was the custom, and he returned to the almost useless, and partly disgraceful, life he had led on the outskirts of Moscow. End of section 6